Anybody remember what we talked about last time? Consciousness. <laughs> Consciousness. Consciousness. Well, I, I think we started talking about unconsciousness. <laughs> Didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. That, was it just a little bit? But also the different levels of unconsciousness and shared yeah. processes. Well, that was, oh, yeah. yeah, we did get into that a bit. We're looking but, at mind moments toward the end. Just to, to review a little bit, we talked about, we were talking about consciousness first, and we identified, well, first of all, we, we discussed the fact that consciousness was always consciousness of something, and that based on the object of consciousness, we could define different kinds of consciousness, uh, visual consciousness, uh, hearing, auditory consciousness, uh, various kinds of body consciousness. Although normally uh, uh, we speak of five senses, and so we could speak of five senses, five kinds of consciousness in terms of the five different kinds of senses, you know, eye, ear, uh, body or touch, uh, taste and smell. but. When we got to body consciousness, we discussed a little bit about the fact that that's not really a very accurate description. That's not one kind of consciousness, nor is it one kind of of sensory modality. That, in fact, there's many kinds of body consciousness. Okay, so (laughs) sensations of temperature and consciousness of temperature are, for example, very different than the kinds of sensations of touch that you have when you reach into your pocket or your purse for your keys, and you're distinguishing between different things uh, to find your keys. Those two are very different. They're at least as different as seeing and hearing are. And there's also a sense of motion, uh, rotation, the sensations that tell you where the parts of your body are when your eyes are closed, you know, the position and location of all the different parts of your body. Uh, there are a whole lot of different kinds of, of body sensations and there's corresponding body consciousnesses that we could attribute uh, those to. So just in terms of sensation alone, we have the five general categories, but in fact recognizing that one of them includes quite a few others. And then there is the consciousness that has mental objects. Uh, so we could call that mind sense consciousness, since you know mental objects uh, in a way that corresponds to how you know objects through the physical senses. So for convenience, we can refer to that as a mind sense. We find a similar situation there as with bodily sensations. The mind sense is really many different kinds of consciousness. Doing arithmetic for example, is very different than remembering something from your childhood, which in turn is very different than the kind of thinking you do when you're writing an essay and so forth. There are many different kinds of consciousness corresponding to many different kinds of mental activities. But for convenience, we'll just refer to this all as as consciousness of mental objects for the moment, okay? So we got five different kinds of sense consciousness and you have mental consciousness. And then the other thing is that we realized that uh, experientially, there is a kind of consciousness that we experience that ties all these different things together. So that what you see and what you hear is connected in your understanding as are all of these different kinds of consciousness connected. And even more than that, they're connected over time so that they make a coherent kind of story. Now, one of the things when we're talking about consciousness in this way is that we draw upon the experience of many meditators of the past, which this, what these meditators have uh, tell us and what you can experience for yourself, what you can count on experiencing for yourself, 
is the realization that consciousness really isn't continuous, but rather consists of discrete moments of these different kinds of consciousness. So that whereas it seems like you're seeing and hearing and feeling at the same time, you have moments of seeing interspersed with moments of hearing, and these are interspersed with moments of feeling, and mental moments of recognizing and remembering and value judgments associated with what you see, hear, and feel. But these happen with a sufficient frequency, and they're so intermingled that it gives us a sense that we have a continuous consciousness that includes a whole variety of different kinds of things. So everything I talked to you about up to this point is something that is immediately verifiable by any ordinary human being's actual personal experience. That consciousness consists of a stream of individual moments of consciousness of these different kinds intermingled with each other is something that you have to rely on the reports of many, many people who have cultivated attention and awareness to the point of being able to experience this directly. But it's not like um, relying on scripture or something. It's something you can and should validate for yourself through your own experience and, uh, and your meditation practice. And some of you, I know, have already done that to some degree or another. So consciousness, to sum it up, consciousness consists of these moments of consciousness of these different kinds of things. Now, an interesting thing that we find is that there's different parts of your brain and nervous system that are associated with every one of these different kinds of consciousness of. Now, that's an interesting validation coming from science of something that uh, is known through personal subjective experience. Uh, and this is true when I said that body consciousness consists of all these different kinds. Completely different parts of your nervous system serve those different, you know, there, there's a pain and temperature pathway that's totally separate from, your, from the touch pathway. And there's a completely different part of your nervous system uh, that keeps track of, of the position of your body parts. And, you know, I mean, I can do all kinds of things and I know what it would look like if I could see them. And there's a part of my nervous system that does that. For every one of these different kinds of consciousness, there's a different part of your physical brain that serves that kind of consciousness. As a matter of fact, if, any, if, if a particular part was damaged, you'd lose that whole category of, of consciousness. Isn't that interesting? But it gives you kind of an idea. Okay. Consciousness is consciousness of these different things, and they fall into discrete category. Same thing's true of consciousness of mental objects. There's certain parts of your brain that are responsible for making certain <coughs> kinds of mental content available in consciousness. So consciousness is moments of consciousness of, of, we'll speak, we'll shorten it down to six different kinds, even though we know it's more, many more than that. And then we're going to add one more category. I already mentioned it's the binding consciousness, that this is where you have moments of consciousness that tie together the contents of those that are coming from different parts of your brain, different parts of your nervous system tie seeing and hearing together, tie uh, the part of your mind that identifies, labels, and categorizes objects with what you see and with what you hear, and so forth. And so we call it binding consciousness. So in addition to these six, there's a category of binding consciousness. Now we've got seven kinds of consciousness. And then for those of you who have meditated and understand that there's really two different ways of knowing anything consciously, consciously knowing something. You can know it through attention or you can know it through peripheral awareness. And these two are served by two different parts of your brain, two different brain systems. So really we need to double that and say, okay, there's 14 different kinds of consciousness. You can have visual consciousness that is a moment of conscious attention 
and you can have visual consciousness it's a moment of conscious peripheral awareness right? visual peripheral awareness so so this is the basic structure of consciousness is moments of consciousness of all these different types woven together and and the glue that holds them together are the binding moments and then in our discussion last week we moved past this recognizing um, as the, the, the great Buddhist meditators of the past there was one school of Buddhism that arose that was called Yogacara for the simple reason that they believed that experience in meditation was the most important criteria the only reliable criteria for in, to serve as the basis for these theoretical models was experience in meditation. They were called Yogacara. And they were the first to articulate really clearly which was something which had only been vaguely articulated prior to them, which was that the conscious mind is really only one small part of the mind. There's another huge part of the mind that is not conscious. Now, previously, that had been recognized in a part of the basic Buddhist scriptures called the Abhidhamma, where they called it the Bawanga, the continuum of the coming. Because they knew that something else was needed to account for the nature of, of conscious experience, but they hadn't found a way to articulate it nearly as clear, clearly as the Yogacharans did. They called this the alaya. We would call it the unconscious. And it's something that, although it was astoundingly revolutionary, uh, well, it was astoundingly revolutionary when the Yogacharans came up with it, it was also astoundingly revolutionary in, in the West when uh, uh, Freud and Jung came up with it. But it's such an obvious thing once somebody's pointed it out that now everyone in this room and virtually everybody in the world now takes it for granted. Yeah, we got a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. It's hard to believe that a century ago most people would really, they'd struggle to wrap their minds around that because it was so different from the way they used to thinking. But we can easily recognize this. Okay, there's an unconscious mind. There's and when we examine our conscious experience, we see the evidence of that. And, and the more we examine it, the clearer it becomes. And of course, meditation is the opportunity above and beyond all others to examine what is going on. Because you're refining, you're enhancing consciousness. And as you observe your own conscious process more and more closely, it becomes more and more obvious that all of this is coming from someplace that is not visible in, in that sense. It's not conscious. And so we started talking about that last week, and that's what I want to talk about more. And so what I want to point out to you, first of all, is that there is an unconscious mind that is responsible for each of the different kinds of consciousness that we experience. So we take visual consciousness, for example. Information comes in through your eyes and it's processed at an unconscious level in a very, very sophisticated way. And what you become conscious of is an image formed by an, un, the, an unconscious mind, or an, we call it, let's call it a sub-mind. You've got, a, a, because from the mind as a whole, or the mind system, this is something that the Yogacharans describe the mind as a system. So consciousness is one part of the mind system. The unconscious is another big part of the mind system. And for each of the types of consciousness that you have, there's a separate sub-mind of the unconscious that's responsible for presenting that information into consciousness. So, when you touch something, you reach out and touch something, 
the information coming from the nerve endings of your fingers being processed by an unconscious mind, which delivers to consciousness a particular representation of that sensory experience. Now, the, we could call that a sense percept. It's like a very simple concept, but it's like a concept in that it's something that has been created by the mind. Okay? Sound. You hear a sound. There is really no such thing as the sound that you hear. You know, somebody could take this with the right kind of equipment and show you on a video screen uh, a bunch of vibrations bouncing up and down and, uh, that represent the ongoing sound in this room. And that's just nothing but a certain group of vibrations of a particular frequency and amplitude mixed in amongst all of the rest. As you know, sound is nothing but vibrations of the air. Air is always vibrating. And so a particular sound is just a set of vibrations that stand out from the others because of their amplitude and their frequency. There's a part of your mind, though, that turns that into that representation of that anomalous group of vibrations in the air striking your eardrum. You with me? That sound does not exist except in your mind because it was created by your mind. It's a sense percept. In every instant of hearing, a sense percept is being delivered into the conscious mind by an unconscious mind whose job is to generate those sense percepts. Why? Well, because then that allows all the other parts of your mind that are not that are not the auditory submind to become aware of the event that's taken place. And so another part of your mind will take that representation and say it sounds like somebody knocking on a piece of wood or something. Right? And there is a visual submind that will actually direct your eyes towards the source of it and provide more information about what's the source of the sound. So really the point that I'm getting at here is you've got a separate submind of the unconscious that is responsible for every kind of conscious experience that you have. I'll just let you digest that one for a moment. Are you conscious of everything that you hear in terms of everything that comes into your ears? Are you conscious of everything that comes into your ears? No. Absolutely not. No. You certainly aren't. You're conscious of a very limited part of the auditory information that you receive. And you're conscious of it in two ways. There's some things that register in your attention and there's other things that just stay in the background. Moments of auditory attention and moments of auditory peripheral awareness. The job of each one of these submines is to take each one of these sensory submines. We'll just stay with the sensory submines for the moment. And I want to make clear that we're staying with the sensory submines because we're going to get along. We're going to get on to the submines that are responsible for mental content in a moment. But each sensory submine is responsible for taking the information that comes in through its particular sensory field. Eyes are a sensory field, ears are a sensory field. For each of the kinds of body sensation, there's, it has its own sensory field. So it's responsible for taking information that comes in through its particular sensory field, processing it, evaluating it, analyzing all at an unconscious level, deciding whether it's important or not, attaching some kind of value to it. The vast majority of it gets flagged as not important enough to go into consciousness, which is why you're only conscious of a small amount of what 
your eyes take in and your ears take in and the sensations that are going on in your body at any given time. Because an unconscious mind has processed and selected what's important, what it, what it thinks is important, what your auditory mind thinks is important. What kind of things do you think the auditory mind would think important? Threats. Right? Threat sound. What kind? Threat sound. Threat sound. Sounds that, yeah, a sound that it recognizes as being associated with danger? Absolutely. Or a sound that it recognizes as being associated with pleasant? Or a sound that associates with being, that it's familiar, that it recognizes, that is associated with some particular degree of importance. Uh, the phone rings, uh, not necessarily pleasant, matter of fact, it's often unpleasant. Uh, and it's not necessarily a threat, but the sound of the phone ringing is automatically flagged by your auditory mind as important. Yeah, so if it's determined that it's important, then the sense percept that has been formed, which is what we know subjectively, consciously, as the experience of a sound, or an image formed by the eye, or, or by, by the visual mind, and so forth, we become conscious of that. We become conscious of what has been projected into the conscious mind by an unconscious mind. An interesting idea, isn't it? But it's kind of obvious, isn't it, too, at the same time? Now, what's really interesting about these unconscious subminds is that Consciousness is the only way that they have of communicating with each other. The auditory mind doesn't know what the visual mind sees unless the visual mind projects an image into consciousness, and vice versa. If the auditory mind projects a particular sound into consciousness, which will be processed enough to maybe carry a label that it's threatening or pleasurable or important or whatever. And then the other minds have that information and it becomes available to them. The eyes, the, the visual mind can direct the head and the eyes to look toward the object and further evaluate it. Different parts of the thinking emotional mind can uh, take the information from the ear and from the eye and process that and recognize it and put a label to it and further identify, you know, sometimes what the auditory mind thought was important or thought was threatening turns out to be not important and not threatening. And that's the job of the thinking mind. It takes that and, and it it takes that sound and then it takes the information from the eyes after they've gone and looked at the thing and it says, well, uh, not really important. It discards it. The way that these different unconscious subminds communicate with each other is through consciousness. The conscious mind is the universal recipient of whatever information any one of these subminds chooses to project into consciousness. And anything that is present in a conscious mind is immediately available to every unconscious submind. Yeah? How does an unconscious mind choose something? How does it? You mean visually? No, like, because choose implies, to me, choose means consciousness. Like, it's choosing something. Oh. So how does it do that? The mechanism, mechanics of how it does it? Or I just, I don't get it. Um, how does an unconscious mind choose to make certain sounds uh, conscious and others not? Well, it consists, each unconscious submind consists of a whole lot of other sub-subminds, right? Each with a simpler job. There's a book that you really should 
reading. It's called Society of Mind. It's a fabulous book written in the 80s. Um, the name of the author is slipping from my mind, but it was. Marvin Minsky. Marvin Minsky, Society of Mind. That is the profundity of what he talked about has not been recognized, truly recognized to the degree it should be by cognitive scientists and psychologists. There are many very simple mental processes which interact with each other to form more complex mental processes. And then there's groups of these more complex mental processes that interact to form still more complex mental processes. Now, since you asked the question, I'm going to tell you. Each of these sub-minds I'm talking about sits at the top of its own hierarchy. And the sub-sub-minds that make it up communicate in exactly the same way that the sub-minds I just described do. There is a corresponding location for them that each of them can project their information and it becomes available to all of the other sub-sub-minds that are part of that sub-mind. So, to quote Bertrand Russell, it's turtles all the way down. I don't know if anybody in the room gets that. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. Once you understand the relationship between the unconscious sub-minds and conscious experience, you have a formula that describes the mind system all the way down to the simplest little two and three neuron uh, subunits in the brain. How can you verify that? Well, the, to a certain level, you can verify it experientially. Uh, well, there's, there's a process. First of all, I, I talk about some things, and I'll continue to talk about things that you know from your own experience. They fit with your own experience. Then there are things, and these were the keys that allow people to understand these things, things that you experience when you refine the way you can use your mind enough. Work through stability of attention and powerful awareness, becoming very powerfully conscious, and through cultivating introspective awareness. It allows you to examine the operations of your mind in real time. These provide the clues. There is a point beyond which you can't experience these things directly. And so it goes back to the kind of verification that this description turns out can't explain almost everything about your experience. So the final level of verification is that it provides a theory that works for everything that you experience. So that's, that's the ultimate level of verification that's possible just using, just sitting like this or walking and talking in the world. The other kind of verification is going to come over the next century or two, I don't know how much longer, with, with the continued advances in uh, ways to... Well, the first thing that's going to have to happen is that subjective research, that's what you're doing when you sit down and meditate and examine your mind. You're, you're doing subjective med research, um, which science up to now has denied has any utility or validity at all. We're just now at the point where that's starting to change a little bit. Um, when that's changed enough, there's going to be a union of subjective and objective ways of understanding the mind that, that's going to lead to a completely different kind of verification. In the meantime, just for the sake of the skeptics in the crowd, and don't stop being skeptics, keep being skeptics, but just for the sake of the skeptics, you probably believe a lot of what modern physics tells us, even though you would have absolutely no way in the world of validating that yourself, because you would have to dedicate the better part of your life to learning the, the mathematics, learning the technology, mastering the machines, and then you'd have to somehow get access to a lot of really expensive, really, really expensive equipment 
to validate these things, but you don't. You take it for granted because everybody that's gone through the process of learning that, learning how to use that equipment, having access to that equipment, has come to a consensus and said, yep, that's what I found too. Well, exactly the same thing is true of subjective research through meditation. Everybody who does the work and does it properly says, yep, I found that too. So, anyway, subjective and objective approaches to knowledge and understanding. We had a wonderful time in history, if we survive it, uh, where... These are coming together, these things that one has shut out the other for so long, they're going to come together and open all kinds of new possibilities out there. But anyway, back to the basic story. Lots of independent, autonomously functioning, separate sub-minds of your subconscious project the information that they think is important into the conscious mind where it becomes available to all the other minds so they can do their thing with it too. How's that for a picture of the mind system? It seems so self-evident to me that I don't know if it's, is it comprehensible to, yeah? It just, there's nothing in the model that precludes sort of communication across minds. I'm not sure that there is a kind of communication that occurs across minds. Okay. But, and I can give you a really good analogy for it. Okay? We'll take Shelley here. Her conscious experience is the result of a whole community of subminds. And we can draw a parallel and we can take all the people that, I, I don't know where you work, but all the people that work in the same office, right? They come to the same place every day. They share all kinds of information that has to do with one particular task, right? So each of those individual people in that office workspace would be like one of the sub-minds in Shelley's mind. And all the information that they exchange in that office through emails, telephone conversations, face-to-face, uh, notes, written, memo, things like that, would be like what happens in Shelley's consciousness. But when, each of those, when, when the day ends, each of those individuals leaves the office, they are a part of other similar units, like each of those people people might, well, not necessarily every one of them, but many of them are members of a family. And some of them are members of a church. And others may be members of uh, some other organization, like the Kiwanis or the Lions or something like that. And as you know, when somebody who works in a particular office can exchange, when they go to a Kiwanis Club meeting, that, that provides an avenue of exchange. No formal communication has occurred between XYZ business and the Kiwanis Club, although the two may communicate in a way. You know, there may be letters from one executive to the other. So that's, it's the same way in the mind. Remember what I said when I was talking about uh, the society of mind model they're very simple. There are very simple units that are put together to make more collectively complex units in a hierarchy. In the, it, it would not make sense when you've got a unit that does one job really well to duplicate it unnecessarily to do the same job in other places. For example, in the business example, this office that everybody works in might not have their own accountant. There's an accountant who does their books and does the books for 16 other similar sized businesses as well. Right? See what I mean? And 
well, to use the example of accountants, accountants aren't supposed to tell people in different offices what's going on in the other offices, but the potential is there, and it can happen. In the same way, there can be this other level of communication in the mind, and there is this other level of communication in the mind, but it's also very limited. What, what the accountant that does the work for several different offices knows is just a tiny slice of the information doesn't know any of the background to what they see in, in the books. So uh, it is a kind of communication. It's a limited kind of communication. The most important communication that takes place between subminds at any level is in the place that's designated for this communication to take place, which in terms of you as an individual, all of these upper-level sub-minds of your unconscious communicate through what you experience as consciousness. But the sub-sub-minds of each one of those has its own consciousness, which you can't access. But you can, you can come to be aware of that taking place. You can do that through your direct experience. Just as we can look at what happens in groups of individuals and we can use that to help us understand what's happening in our own minds. Yeah. I'm trying to apply this model. How we address things when we don't know what they mean. You know, much of what you've pointed out, we, we know Oh, that's a light. Oh, that's a door switch. You know, mm-hmm. there's 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 a lot of stuff we never quite know what it means. And uh, let's talk about some real examples of it. Okay. 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 When you when you're driving yeah. along and you have a feeling. Uh, let's let's forget feeling. Let's okay. stick with the concrete thing. We can get to the feelings later on. Okay. We haven't really talked much about. Uh, you know, we can divide the unconscious mind into the sensory unconscious mind, which is what we call five senses for convenience, and the thinking emotional mind, which really includes the mind that's responsible for every kind of mental object. Um, Maybe we won't get into it now, but when we talk about the, the mind that's responsible for binding moments of consciousness, that's a kind of mental thing too. But the Yogacharans, and I believe they're justified, regarded it as a separate mind from the thinking, emotional mind. Okay. But let's, let's use some concrete examples. You hear a sound. You don't know what that sound is. Now, that's one kind of thing that is sure to end up in consciousness, is an unknown sound, because it might be important. It might be dangerous. Okay, And so that's one of the things that when the auditory mind, you know, most of the things that it doesn't send into consciousness is because it recognizes, oh, that's just a, uh, a traffic noise on the street, that's just the neighbor's dog barking, that's just the sound of the air conditioning coming on. You know, it's a, and it says, okay, identify and not important. So it doesn't become conscious. But something that was unknown would become conscious. Okay. And you know what happens when that happens? You hear the sound and it reverberates in your mind, even after the sound's over with, you keep kind of replaying it, and as you're replaying it, other parts of your mind are trying to match that sound up. They're doing their best to figure out what it could be. And, you know, if it could be recognized as a whole in the moment, probably your auditory mind would have done it and that would have been the end of the story. But these other parts of your mind will keep working at it, they'll deconstruct it, they'll relate it to, they'll think of other things that it might be, you know, Martians landing on the roof, and whatever. And you've experienced that. That's what happens, that's one of the purposes of putting something into consciousness is that uh, you don't know how to deal with it. Let's use another example. Like probably everyone in the room drives a vehicle, right? And I'm sure everyone in the room has driven blocks, if not all the way across town sometimes, while they were 
so busy thinking about something, or they're in such a deep conversation with your passenger that when you came back to the present and looked through the windshield, you didn't even know where you were. I like this my turn. Where am I? And then at some point you recognize where you are. But in the meantime, you have sped up, slowed down, stopped for lights, maybe stop signs, probably changed lanes, all kinds of other things. Automatically. These sub-lines are powerful. You think about it, when you drive a car, and you pay attention when you drive a car, next, next time you drive a car. As a matter of fact, people say, how do you practice mindfulness doing ordinary things? I mean, like if I'm driving from Kochi Stronghold to uh, Tucson, how on earth do I practice mindfulness? I mean, no, of course I'm going to think about other things. If you do practice mindfulness, you'll notice what's really happening. You'll notice your eyes go through a pattern a pre-programmed pattern of movements that you have learned. They, they check the vehicles beside you and in front of you and they look in the rear view mirror and they look in the side mirror and then they go back to looking ahead. They keep doing all that. And they respond to what they see. This happens when you're driving down the city street. Your eyes see the tail lights of the car ahead and Every one of these sensory sublines has direct access to the motor system of the body. So when your visual mind sees the red light comes on, it takes the foot off the gas and moves it over to the brake. And if it sees the distance closing a little bit quickly, it starts to push down on the brake. And it will do that even while you're totally engaged in a conversation with somebody else. Likewise, as you're driving around and doing this, you, you change lanes. You know, you're behind somebody slow and you move into fast lane and faster lane and because it's empty. And you can do this completely unconsciously. Now, when you're doing that, the visual mind is turning the steering wheel and, you know, it turns the head, see, okay, it turns the steering wheel. At the same time, your body sensory mind is keeping tabs on how it feels. You know, there's a rotational feeling as your body moves, as the vehicle moves, and whether it's too fast or too slow. Same thing when you're braking. It is also responding. You have the visual mind and the, the body, we call it the body mind, both have access to the motor system. And even though they're not communicating in consciousness, they're still working together. Now, when you're driving automatically, and the visual mind says, slow down and starts putting on the brake. And the body sensory mind, which can't see anything, says, whoa, we're decelerating too fast. And it wants to pull up on the brake. Then all of a sudden it becomes conscious. You're, you're in the middle of saying something to your passenger when all of a sudden you realize, no, we're closing in on that pair of red taillights much too quickly. Then it becomes conscious. Then then the two communicate with each other. Then there's a possibility for overwrite. The thinking mind can get in there and, and put its two bits worth in. Uh, it might even say, you know, you better uh, lift that mug of hot coffee up in the air, otherwise slowing down this fast is going to splash all over you. Right? So these are some concrete examples of how these unconscious minds work. Yeah? Um, what is the telepathicals? Where's what? Telepathy. Telepathy? Yeah. Oh, we got to wait. That comes much later in the story. That's what I told you. Yeah. So I know this is kind of impatient to ask of you now, but I'm thinking that I would love to hear more before we run out of time from you about the spiritual significance uh, behind all of this, you know, structure of having the Consciousness and all the stuff. Okay, well, uh, spoiler alert. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the contents of consciousness are all arising from these different unconscious minds. And what we're going to see, we, we need to really talk about binding consciousness, and we got to talk about the mind that generates binding consciousness. But what you're going to see is there is no self in this. There's no person who is in charge. This is just a collective of autonomously functioning sub-minds 
which must cooperate in order for you to survive. And, you know, consciousness is the meeting place where that happens. It's like the boardroom, where things, where information gets presented and discussed and decisions made by, by separate autonomous sublines. And there is no one in charge. Although, as with every meeting that you've ever been to, there's always a few people that try to take over. Right? And there are always other people who don't want them to take over, and so you experience inner conflict. But there, there is no separate person in this structure. The self that you are is the collective of these. And this is what the Buddha was trying to explain with, when he, with the description of the five aggregates. If we, if we take the time to get into this deeply enough, we're going to see that everything I'm talking about, it is the five aggregates. What is the aggregate of consciousness? Well, it's all these different kinds of consciousness that I talked about. It's differentiated on the basis of their, of, of their objects. But there is no self in that. And that's what the, the reason the Buddha taught the five aggregates is he wanted us to realize there is no self in, in that. So that's one thing. What are you conscious, what, what, conscious of? You're conscious of the products of your unconscious subminds. You're conscious of sense percepts from the sensory subminds, and you're conscious of mental formations uh, in a more elaborate mental formation. Sense percepts are, are mental formations as well. They've been, they're constructs of the mind. They're representations of the mind of how the world might be on the other side of the sense organ. And, and uh, memories, thoughts, ideas, emotions, everything else, these too are mental constructs. So everything that you become conscious of is a construct of one of the unconscious subminds. That is what you are conscious of. Who is conscious of it? Well, there is no you that's conscious of it. Who is conscious of it is all the sub-minds that happen to be paying attention at any given moment. So, one of the really dramatic things that understanding this leads to is it, it, it helps you to understand one of these big mysteries. How can it be that how could it be that there is no self in here? I feel like a self. What we've got to talk about is why you feel like a self. And next time we'll look more at, well, next time we'll tie up any loose ends on this. This has been a very quick and dirty description. I don't know how effective it's been. Where we need to get to, though, are these binding moments and the sub-mind and the unconscious that I call the narrating mind, the one that tells the story of you. And the funny thing is that it's not intending to tell the story of you, but the sub-minds of the thinking emotional mind mistake the way the story is told for meaning that there is a separate and abiding self when there actually isn't one. So that's that's a really important part of the punchline that we need to talk about binding moments and the narrating mind to get into. Yeah. So are you also saying that if you're able to slow your mind enough or become conscious and aware enough through meditation, you are able to get to a point where you can discreetly perceive the difference of minds working and get to a point where you sense that everything is processed and therefore uh, moves through all that too. Yeah, you get to the place where you can discern all of this quite, quite clearly. You are never going to know anything about what's actually happening in the sub-minds, in the unconscious mind, except through inference. But Remember, there are many separate moments of consciousness of each of these different types. And when you get to the point where you can see what's happening, the, your powers of inference of what's behind it become tremendous. Uh, to the point, 
it starts to become really obvious. Yeah. I have a very silly question. Do you make a difference between awareness and consciousness? No, we take a, a, a distinction between, uh, well, consciousness is of two types, attention and peripheral awareness. Awareness is of two types, conscious awareness and unconscious awareness from the vantage point of a single human being. But more realistically, there, there isn't unconscious awareness, what, because that is conscious, but it's a conscious at a different level. But for in practical terms, what you have, the distinction you have to make is between conscious awareness and unconscious awareness. Because yes, definitely, you examine what's happening in your body and your mind, and there is, quote, awareness of all kinds of things that you never become conscious of. And so trying to bend language to fit the reality that we see, the only way we can do that is to distinguish between conscious awareness and unconscious awareness. But conscious awareness, in turn, consists... Now here we're using uh, awareness in a slightly different sense. Conscious awareness consists of attention, which is focuses in, isolates one part out from the rest of the whole, analyzes it, categorizes it, and most especially uh, forms a polarity. It analyzes and evaluates it as object and self, and what is the relevance of this object to the self. Peripheral awareness does something quite different. It takes in the whole picture. What your your peripheral awareness is a, a global holistic picture of the background to whatever attention is focused on. It is not analyzed. It does not it, it does not attribute a lot of specialness to object. It gives at least as import as much importance. And actually I have to say it Peripheral awareness gives more importance to the relationship between object, the relationship between them, and the relationship between each object and the whole than it does individual object. So it's it's putting its emphasis on a different aspect of things. As you, in your meditation, become more aware of thought processes, you realize that there are verbal thought processes and image thought processes and uh, and uh, uh, kinesthetic thought processes, but beneath those is a level of concept. Images, verbal thoughts, and kinesthetic thoughts are constructed out of concepts, which are like things. But there is another level of uh, perception that is behind, uh, not perception, there's another level of thinking that is almost purely relational. It is what organizes those objects into a particular pattern. And it's actually quite different. And in your meditation, when you get past, when you get past language and image and kinesthesia to objects, concept, and a form of concept, then you'll, as soon as you're at that level, you can kind of see through the object to the part of your mind that is primarily relational. And once you see that, you'll see that most of your important thinking is where your mind takes the objects and it doesn't pay attention. It, it, it ignores the specificity of the objects. It looks for whether they can be fit into a familiar pattern. And when they have, when they can be, then, then that arises into consciousness as a kind as a thought kind of understanding that oh these th these things can be connected and understood in terms of this relational pattern and awareness peripheral conscious awareness partakes much more of that relational aspect not exclusively because it's it's also you know objects are identified in peripheral awareness but it partakes more strongly of the relational aspect. It provides the background to whatever you pay attention to. Yes? Last 
Kelsey, you were um, saying that you didn't want to bring up the feeling side uh, so much, yet, you know, the precept of the senses or sense memories, like, I feel them. Um, say sound or uh, hear a little, like, a couple of bars of Chopin or something, mm -hmm. and flooded with memory, not, not memory, emotion, yeah, with yeah. feeling mm -hmm. that is... Uh, um, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm just curious. I, I sometimes almost feel like it's, it's a, a connection to subconscious. It, it's as if it, it oh. sort of drops the bottom out. And, and absolutely, and absolutely, as you see, every object of consciousness is associated with a feeling. And, and, and the Buddha used feeling. Well, the, the the word we translate into uh, English as feeling was Vedana. And he used that in a highly technical sense to mean feeling of positive, pleasant, negative, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Absolutely everything that enters consciousness is associated with that. Now, what happens, you can hear a single note and just the tone itself might be associated with pleasant. You hear two notes in quick succession, depending on the frequencies, that might be experienced as pleasant or unpleasant, right? You hear several notes in succession, and not only is each note, and not only is the relationship between the notes associated with pleasant or unpleasant, but when this becomes conscious, another part of your mind will recognize this as, oh, that's uh, Beethoven's fifth, okay? Blah, 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 or, you know, you'll recognize it. Now, you have past associations with that. Well, not everybody has. For some people, got no past. But if you do have past associations with that, then the feeling tone that's going to be associated with the recognition of it is going to reflect those feelings. If, if that was what they played in the torture chamber you were in, it won't be good. <laughs> but if it was, if, if, if that was a wonderful piece of music that your beloved uncle always used to listen to when he did, uh, told, told great stories and stuff like that, and you really fond, then it's going to have a really good feeling associated with it. Every object of consciousness has these feelings, and each of these sub-minds has its own stored, it, first of all, it has its own kind of view of reality, and it has all of its stored information, and it has, everything is tagged, every stored information is tagged with associated affective quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And so that's going to account for experience that you have. Yeah. yeah um, continue with, with my question. Why does it seem that, to me, and I've talked about this with, with friends, why does it seem that uh, the, the sense of sound is the one that seems to generate more of this wellspring of emotion? Well, Music sound does, but uh, also smell. Smell is one of the most powerful <laughs> emotive senses. And why is that? Why are some more so than others? Well, we can only theorize about that, but... I think it probably, you know, we relied on smell long before we had to, had developed uh, powerful visual senses. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with sound. As a matter of fact, fish don't really hear, but they do the equivalent, well, maybe they do. Who knows what it's like to be a fish? But fish have basically what's like what's like an extended cochlea on both sides of their body. The cochlea is the organ you have in your, They have an extended cochlea, and it's extremely sensitive to very subtle changes in pressure in the water and vibrations in the water. So even a fish is basically listening for the approach of a bigger fish, you know, or uh, listening for a school of little fish that are tasty. Right? So I would think that it's because the the chemical sense of smell and the vibratory sense that we experience as hearing hearing has been with us evolutionarily for so long and has been relied upon so heavily. Simple organisms don't think about things. They react on the basis of the emotional 
content of, you know, something smells bad, you avoid it, smells good, you try to bite it. You know? <laughs> okay, well, I, I do want to say, I pre presented a lot of very sophisticated information in what seems to me a somewhat disorganized way, but I, I hope all I can say is I hope that it came across and that you understood it and you got the gist of it. And um, so please come back in two weeks. Think about this in the meantime. Do your best to poke holes in it, okay? And come back with some good questions and good challenges. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we'll move on from there. All right? Okay. We love you all. Thank you for coming. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you.